0: I'm going to read a story I expect everyone has heard before called The Elves and the Shoemaker. Once upon a time, a shoemaker and his wife fell upon hard times. No matter what they did, things went from worse to worse. One day, the cobbler found he had only a small piece of leather left in his shop. He did not despair, but sat down, cut the leather carefully, and started to sew a pair of shoes. But when evening came, he went home to his wife. The next day, when he came to his shop, the cobbler found a pair of shoes. Someone had come in during the night and and finished his work. The shoemaker sold the shoes and used the money to buy more leather. He spent the day cutting the new material. When evening arrived, he again put his work away and returned home to his wife. The next morning, the cobbler found several more pairs of shoes in his shop. His mysterious helper had come again, and the new shoes were even nicer than the first ones. The shoemaker sold the shoes, bought more leather, cut it carefully, left the pieces, and so on and on it went. The shoemaker soon prospered, and his reputation for marvelous shoes spread far and wide. One day around Christmas, the cobbler said to his wife, We really should do something nice for whoever is making these shoes for us. So that evening they hid in the workshop and waited anxiously. Right around midnight, they heard singing, and what did they see but two elves leaping through the window. They danced, did somersaults, and sang. They were as naked as the dawn, barefoot and carefree. After their singing and dancing, they sat down, started making shoes and boots, finished their works, Skipped around the room and finished on a moonbeam, uh, vanished on a moonbeam. The shoemaker and his wife could barely believe their eyes. Two elves have been helping us. We must give a gift to them. Well, since they were naked and since it was winter, the shoemaker and his wife decided to make clothes and boots for them. So the shoemaker stitched two tiny pairs of boots lined with fur while his wife sewed two jackets and two pairs of pants, warm and fleecy. On Christmas Eve, they set out their presents in the workshop, hid and watched. Sure enough, the elves leaped through the window and looked around in bewilderment. There was no leather for them to sew, no tools to use. And then they saw the gifts. Ooh, one elf exclaimed as he picked up a tiny shoe and tried it on. Ah, the other cried as he squirmed into a shirt and the pants. All the clothes fit perfectly. The elves admired each other as they danced with glee, then vanished into the moonlight. The shoemaker and his wife were delighted and went to bed as happy as could be. The next evening, the elves did not return, nor the night after or ever again. What have we done? The shoemaker and his wife asked themselves. But they were practical people, so the cobbler started working once again. With a little practice, he made shoes as beautiful as the elves had made. So he and his wife lived happily For the rest of their days. As a child of six, I appeared on the stage as one of the shoemaking elves from the fairy tale I have just shared with you. My mother's expertise at making costumes meant that her children frequently had good roles in school plays. Careful reading of this story and the explication by psychiatrist author Alan Chinen suggests that our costumes were not entirely authentic. I think the elves in our version wore tattered clothing until their new outfits were ready, but I know that we would have worn something. Now, this fairy tale was one that I never understood or felt particularly drawn to as a child. I found it puzzling. And indeed, it was only when I read it as a story dealing with issues of midlife and read the interpretation given to it in Chinin's book, Once Upon a Midlife, that it made sense. He calls it a story about the loss of magic. After the shoemaker and his wife discover who has been making the wonderful shoes, and after they clothe the elves who have been so generous with them, the elves disappear. The magic is lost. Innocence, lack of inhibition, and youth are gone. But the shoemaker and his wife do not starve. They continue to thrive through their own labor. The shoemaker has learned from observing the work of his mentors how to make shoes as fine as any they made. And so it is with us. Upon entering midlife, we may find that although the magic of youth is gone, we survive, we are productive and can take care of ourselves. This story is a fairy tale defined as a folk tale with a happy ending. The true fairy tale is different from a literary tale written by a specific author, which will of necessity be particular. The fairy tale, in contrast, is universal. Similar stories are found in the folklore of diverse cultures. China's research has shown that many of the fairy tales once thought to be for the amusement of children and the edification of youth actually hold lessons for those who are already grown. They were originally told by adults for adults, serving many of the functions now served by media and literature. He has written another book on the subject in the Ever After, Fairy Tales for the Second Half of Life. He calls these elder tales, The tales included in both books have a counterpart or variant in at least one other culture. Shannon believes these tales help adults with the important developmental tasks of the second half of life. Fairy tales, according to him, consider the old to be 40 or 50 and beyond. Fairy tales originated long ago when life was harsh and short. The average life expectancy in medieval Europe was less than 25. Someone of 40 years was counted long lived and a person of 60 miraculously old. In fairy tales then the word old really means middle aged and beyond. Now we who are already miraculously old (laughs) might prefer a different frame of reference, such as that used by Bernard Baruch, who is credited with saying, old age is always 15 years older than you are right now. (laughs) Let's see. That's about right. The tales for midlife explore a wide range of issues the loss of youthful ideals resistance to settling down to careers and committing to marriage and male female differences in roles and difference in roles and sensibilities including women's emancipation at midlife some of them deal with role reversals he says that by midlife both men and women arrive at a first-hand knowledge of power and helplessness, autonomy and relatedness, triumphant suffering. By reversing traditional masculine and feminine roles, individuals at midlife come to a deeper, richer understanding of sexuality and human experience. This contrasts sharply with the stark dualities that dominate youth and allow both men and women to go beyond roles to develop as unique individuals. Now, I think there may be old folk tales dealing with same-sex relationships and sensibilities, but none are discussed in China's book nor am I aware of any specific stories that do. It just seems likely that they would have been. Other themes in the stories are the role of suffering in gaining insight, dealing with crises, the challenge of evil, facing aging and mortality, and seeking the wisdom of renewal. Of course, these are issues we may need to deal with at any age, but they certainly surface at midlife. In the Brothers Grimm called the Dr- Brothers Brothers Grimm tale Called the duration of life, all animals were granted 30 years of life upon their creation. But the ass, knowing that his destiny was to be a beast of burden, asked for a reprieve from so much labor. God took back 18 years. The dog, fearing old age, asked to have 12 of his years removed and God obliged. The monkey also feared old age and pleaded for a shorter life. So God took back 10 years. Finally, humans appeared. Man and woman felt dissatisfied with 30 years and asked for more. So God gave them the 18 extra years given up by the ass, the 12 given up by the dog, and the 10 given up by the monkey. And that is why human beings, when all goes well, live in health and happiness for 30 years. It is their natural lifespan. Then we get the asses 18 years, working without stop, <laughs> beaten and harried every day. The next dozen years are the dog's years, when people may sit near the fireplace grumbling and growling. Finally, the monkey's years arrive when people do whatever they feel like. (laughs) Well, sort of. Most folk tales from preliterate Europe have been edited and rewritten so many times, they have become less particular and less universal and more particular. This continues today. In addition to the various Disney versions, we have the television series Once Upon a Time, the movie Into the Woods, and other fractured fairy tales. Eating breakfast yesterday at a neighborhood gathering place, I overheard someone at the table next to us talking about, I don't know exactly what work she was talking about, but some of the details were that Cinderella didn't marry Prince Charming, Jack, of Jack and the Beanstalk fame, well, Jack's mother was killed, and Rapunzel's mother left home. I gather this was to prevent having to give her baby to the witch next door. Studies in human development suggest that the task necessary for growing into maturity are those pointed to in the literature of folk wisdom. I have no doubt that elder tales have much to offer us as we move toward, in, and through psychological maturity. Realistically, however, we live in a culture where fairy tales are not in vogue. And so, for the most part, we turn to other sources for stories to help us understand our developmental needs as individuals, institutions, and a culture, and perhaps to fulfill those needs. What are those sources? Movies, television, radio, the Internet? Ah, the Internet. Offer many stories to choose from. So too do studies in the social sciences. Literature, fiction and nonfiction, poetry and prose offer much, but with the proliferation of publishing there's so many things to read in so many formats it's unlikely for a cohesive cultural narrative to develop from many disparate sources. Church life for Unitarian Universalists as well as others Offers many opportunities for interacting with stories. In David Bumba's book, Unitarian Universalism, A Narrative History, he suggests that we are defined as a people by a common story, and that story has shaped our institutions in significant ways. What is that common story or community story? And where did it come from? I suggest that it is still being written today. It is and ought to be always a work in progress, and it has many strands coming from our many sources and expressed in our principles. Seeing the movie Selma prompted me to pick up Mark Morrison Reed's book, The Selma Awakening, How the civil rights movement tested and challenged Unitarian universalism, although it was still a few books down from the top of the stack. Part of the Selma story is ours by virtue of the participation of many UUs and the martyrdom of two. But we should keep in mind that only a small part of that larger story is ours. Many others have marched for justice. Many have suffered and died. Morrison Reed's book, though, describes how that larger story of the struggle for civil rights, for human rights, impacted our story as a movement. In March, many UUs will go to Selma, some as a group by train, for the 50th anniversary observance of the Selma March, adding another paragraph to our story. Think for a moment. What stories do we tell about the development of our faith? About the world around us and our place in it? And what are the personal stories we tell that, when woven together, create the community story? Jesuit John Dominic Crossan wrote that we live in story like fish in the sea. He suggests there are five forms of story, with myth and parable as the poles of the story, and all other forms in between. He identifies these others as epilogue or moral tale, action, and satire. So he has five forms. I'm not sure he includes every everything in there. What about the informational story? Folk tales as a form of... Oh, um, As he puts it, myth establishes world, creates the way we see the world, an apologue or moral tale defended. Folk tales as a form of fiction may fit into any one of the categories, but many of those for adults especially lean toward the pole of parable. They often stand conventional wisdom on its head. Doing something generous for the elves causes them to leave. The little red hen eats all the bread herself. Cross and Stairs this shares this quote, parables are fiction, not myths. They are meant to change, not reassure us. Morrison Reed's book may be part apologue or moral tale, part action story. The folk story about the years allotted to each of the animals, we recognize as satire. When all ages are in worship together, we often tell and listen to stories. I think this is a most significant moment in church life. Over the years, I have on occasion been puzzled by the stories selected to be told at that time. Sometimes I've been astounded. I sometimes wonder if I'm the only one who gets a message from the story that really isn't appropriate for the worshiping community. Now, you may be thinking about the story I shared while the children were with us. Can she really be telling our children it's okay not to share, but just to sit down and eat in front of others. You may be thinking, after all the times we have told them to share. Well, perhaps. I found on the internet a version of the story with an addition that said the next time the little red hen found a grain of wheat, everyone pitched in to help, and they all enjoyed eating the bread together. But the original story is more of a parable than a moral tale. It stands conventional wisdom on its head. But if children think about the story, and perhaps some will, I think they can puzzle out what might have happened if everyone had pitched in. If any among them say to you that I told them it's okay to be selfish, maybe you better let me know. In our times together, we tend to draw on stories from around the world. We do, however, have myths, although sometimes we are reluctant to claim them. Those are the myths of the Western world, the Greeks and Romans, of course. Well, those are okay. But the myths of our common culture, the myths of the Jewish and Christian Bibles, and a culture that accepts such stories as history, we rightly resist literalist interpretations, but we often neglect interpreting them as well. There are many messages to be drawn from these stories, although not all need to be embraced. When using biblical material with children, I have found it useful to recognize that we are talking about story. When asked, is that true? Or did that really happen? We can only say, that is the story. I believe the same is true of the fairy tales I've been talking about. Did they really happen? Well, that's a story. We may take from it what we will. My father was a teller of tales, especially the variety known as tall tales, his version of how our hometown came to be called Grady explained how it was named after the conductor on the first train that came through. Now that's a tall tale. Who would name their town after a conductor on the train? Years later, I found a newspaper article about a train robbery on that part of the Missouri-Pacific Railroad and they quoted conductor Grady Another of my father's stories was about the cyclone as they then called tornadoes that was the storm was so bad that the organ from the Methodist church blew over town playing goodbye my baby i'm gone In the files of the Arkansas Gazette, I read about that storm. It noted that the organ from the Methodist Church had been found a few days later all the way over on the other side of town. It did not mention what tune, if any, it played on the (laughs) way. I dare say many of our Unitarian Universalist stories have elements of the mythic, the moral tale, action, satire, and parable. The community stories we share, the personal stories each of us bring to this community of faith, go into the building of our living tradition. May it be so.